Hi, and thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara-Byrne. Today we find out of the new Ford F-150 Lightning, the much-anticipated electric version of North America's most popular pickup lives up to the hype and what impact that could have on the perception and purchasing of electric vehicles. We speak to the CEO of Ukrainian Railways about how the rail system has become a lifeline for the country and a symbol of defiance against the Russian invasion, evacuating millions from war zones and moving supplies to the front lines. We assess how the six candidates for leadership of the Conservative Party of Canada did in the first official debate held in Edmonton tonight. But first, the official opposition continues to call on the federal government to do more to help Afghan interpreters and staff who work for the Canadian military and embassy and their families escape Afghanistan and come to Canada. We speak to one former interpreter about the dangers those left behind continue to face. talking about Canada's failure to bring a number of Afghan interpreters who work for the Canadian military and embassy and their families to this country. This week brought more reports of people who had aided Canada's military and diplomatic mission in Kabul being detained and beaten by the Taliban. This all comes eight months after the fall of Kabul, more even, and some are no closer to coming to this country as we promised. Well, joining me now is Ahmad Shoaib. He's a former Afghan interpreter and represents former resettled Afghan Canadian interpreters in this country. Ahmad, thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you so much for having me. Were you surprised at all about the reports this week that uh, that that in fact people who've been left in Afghanistan are being targeted by the Taliban have suffered at the hands of the Taliban um, while they've been left there? Actually, the the problem in Afghanistan is massive. It is beyond on what we are talking about because the lives are at high risk there. They're at risk of hunger. They're at risk of economic crisis. And they're at risk of not getting their passports to get out of Afghanistan. There are loads of stress and loads of problems and loads of threats to our extended family members of the former interpreters and those who are left out in Afghanistan waiting to get out of that country for their life, to to live a safe and peaceful life. Ahmad, one of the problems we know, of course, is the difficulty for those who've been accepted into Canada or have their applications being processed but can't travel because they don't have the right documents. What about the ones whose process hasn't even started yet? I understand there are some who don't even have case numbers yet. Um, a lot of the, a lot of the, them are receiving slowly their case numbers, but... The case number is not as important as the human life is. We are talking our families, our brothers, our siblings, life, that they are at high risk due to our contribution with Canadian mission in Afghanistan. They are now the victim of what we have done, and that was to help and support and to be one of the allies of the Canadian forces in Afghanistan. I understand that uh, that people who represent um, your group have been meeting with the immigration minister, or at least immigration officials, for quite some time. What are they telling you about the delays? 
the delays are obvious and that's more the delays are obvious that everything is going good but way too slow because if we are talking about lives their paperwork and policy should not be the priority there there have been things that have been made in the policy that people who left Afghanistan before July 22 2021 are not even eligible to get to be to get back to their with their family members and to reunite with their family members the problems in the ground are that they cannot get passports and the, the problem that they those that they made it out of Afghanistan they're still waiting in a third country that is more frustrating cuz they left everything behind and waiting in a third country in the hope of a flight to take them to Canada and all what is making it slower this making this process slower is less practice less actions so that we can see that things are going things are moving but when we look at this in a different way that okay the problem we have right now in in third country is nothing when i say nothing that means that we the canadian government can bring those that they are waiting in a third country to canada to a third country and process their applications those that right. they are in kabul waiting they got their passports they got their visa to a third country but they're still waiting for for ircc to call on them to come to a third country and we will start your process so well, what do you think of a single use is to wait What do you think of a single-use travel document? That's been one that's been brought up this week as a potential solution by both the opposition, the Conservatives and the NDP, saying a single-use travel document would be helpful and to speak to the government of Pakistan, which I assume we're doing, but it's hard to get clarity on that. Uh, we have been asking for single-entry travel document from day one, but the response is. negative and we there is no result about it except talking about this if they issue a single entry travel document that will be the best thing we could ever get from canadian government because we are in stress we are panicking about our families on daily basis they are under threat because of us because of our contribution to the canadian government and of mission afghanistan so we need and we want the government of canada to take actions and to evacuate and to take our families out of afghanistan to a third country in order to make sure they live in peace and by evacuate i assume you mean get, get them documents they need i i, I don't imagine you, do you want them to be physically evacuated Uh, we want the government of canada obviously physically evacuation uh, doesn't make any difference still 
because they will be struggling in a third mm. country. We want the process to be faster. We want solutions for this. It is not possible for the family members to get passports. So if they cannot get passports, they cannot go to a third country. And the government not, yeah. and IRCC is not help for helping us in that regard to find a solution, to find a way with Tajikistan, with, with talk with Pakistan and find a solution for this because our, the threat to family members are rapidly rising and, it, and it's getting worse on a on daily basis. Ahmad Shoaib, thank you so much for your time tonight, uh, for joining us again, for giving us an update, and certainly we hope that, uh, that this process speeds up. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you. Well, we just finished speaking to Ahmad Shoaib about um, Afghan interpreters still left in that country. Reports this week of some being arrested, beaten, tortured by the Taliban. Uh, he, of course, reminded uh, our listeners that there is a hunger problem, there's a food crisis, there's an economic crisis, and that time is not on the sides of those still left there. So why are they still there eight months later after the fall of the Taliban when Canada promised to get them out of there? In Parliament, the opposition continues to call on the government to do more to fulfill its promise of bringing interpreters and their families to this country, uh, well, at least, you know, not leaving them at the mercy of the Taliban. In particular, people already identified, such as a group of lawyers who work for the Canadian embassy in Kabul. The burning question still, what is taking so long? Joining me now is Michael Chong. He's the Conservative Foreign Affairs critic and the Member of Parliament for Wellington, Halton Hills. Michael Chong, thank you for your time tonight. Great to be here, Ben. We've been talking about this for a while. Uh, we've talked about this special obligation we have to those that help serve our country in Afghanistan. At, at least in your estimation, we're still not living up to it. Absolutely not. Look, it's been more than eight months since Kabul fell to the Taliban. And in that time, very little has happened. And to get the Afghans who sacrificed so much to help Canadian soldiers during the war in Afghanistan to Canada. Uh, we're talking about several hundred Afghans who risked their lives during the war and afterwards to assist Canadian soldiers, to assist Canadian diplomats who have been desperate to get to Canada. And many of them haven't even had their applications opened by the immigration department. This is an appalling lack of leadership on part of the government of Canada. And so we have been raising the alarm bells about this to light a fire under the minister uh, to get something done. You're seeing two distinct issues here, or at least two complementary ones, rather. Uh, one is those who just aren't in the system. And then we know, of course, that because of the circumstances right now, no representation on the ground in Afghanistan, that there are those who are simply stuck. They can come here, but they can't get here. That's correct. Uh, and obviously, that's a difficult situation. And that's why we're calling the latter is a difficult situation where the the individual Afghans who had their applications approved um, are finding it difficult to get out, which is why we're calling on the government to issue a single-use travel document issued by the Canadian government um, to allow them to go to a third country, such as Pakistan, so that they then can get to Canada. And at the same time, we're uh, calling on the government to work with the Pakistan uh, with the government of Pakistan in order to ensure that these travel, these single use travel documents are recognized by the border officials at, in Pakistan to allow entry of these vulnerable Afghans. So that's certainly a different situation than those Afghans who are in 
uh, Kabul and in Afghanistan who are stuck and whose applications haven't even been opened, haven't even been processed by the immigration department. And it's that former group of Afghans that, you know, that, you know, we're confounded by. It's been eight months since Kabul fell. I'll give you one example. There were, there are currently 28 government of Canada lawyers that are stuck in Afghanistan. These are individuals who were hired by the embassy in Kabul, by the Canadian embassy in Kabul, who were asked to represent the Canadian government in Afghanistan's legal system. They did legal work for the Canadian government in Afghanistan for many, many years. Uh, The contract goes as far back as 2013. These 28 individual lawyers haven't even had their applications processed by the department, by the immigration department, despite the fact that these names were given to the department months and months ago. They are in hiding. Uh, Many of them are are being threatened uh, by the Taliban. Uh, There have been examples of People in similar situations have been beaten and tortured simply for having worked with Canadian authorities. So it's situations like this that are absolutely confounding. It's just, it's a complete puzzle why the minister hasn't taken action uh, to get these applications processed. You spent time in government, Michael. Is this a question of over-promising, under-delivering, or both? This This is a problem of a lack of leadership from the minister's office. Uh, it's clear that these applications, such as the 28 I've mentioned and hundreds of others, um, are stuck in some red tape. And it's the job of the minister to unstick the red tape and to get action on these files. Uh, I think what's happened is that they've been lost in the shuffle of hundreds of thousands of uh, applications for the general stream of refugees. Uh And I think that's unacceptable. These are individuals with whom which this country has a unique and enduring relationship. These are people who put a lot on the line when they signed up to help Canadian diplomats, Canadian soldiers in the field during the war in Afghanistan. So we owe to them a duty. We owe to them our honor that we will do everything we can to get them out of the country to freedom and to Canada. And we're failing in that obligation right now. And that's a shame Uh, for this country. And I imagine when we look to Afghanistan right now, the concern must only be growing because I feel like we're seeing a more emboldened Taliban these days uh, with the announcement over the weekend that uh, women would have to fully cover again. It seems that the consequences of their actions are not something they're necessarily looking into. Do you get that sense as well that time is not on the side of those who are left behind there right now? That's my sense. Um, You know, recently, uh, you know, with every passing week, it seems like the Taliban authorities are introducing even more draconian measures to suppress local populations. Um, you know, recently they announced that women had to be covered uh, completely when they uh, left the home. Um, and so each and every week we're hearing further abuses of the rights of Afghans. And so I think the situation is deteriorating rapidly. In fact, it's safe to say that Afghanistan is the biggest humanitarian disaster unfolding in the world today, uh, even bigger than some of the other conflicts that we're all very aware about. Uh, There are millions and millions of Afghans who are at risk of starvation uh, on top of the uh, horrific treatment they're receiving at the hands of the Taliban authorities. What would be a good first step in your eyes? Well, I think what the minister needs to do is he needs to instruct departmental officials to pull 
these applications uh, of several hundred Afghans who have a direct tie to Canada, the, the people who are the interpreters, the local advisors, local experts who worked, for example, as lawyers for the embassy in Kabul. He needs to instruct the department to pull those applications out of the uh, general stream and to make sure that they are processed immediately. Uh, and I think that's the kind of political leadership we're calling on the government to do. Michael Chong, thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you very much. Well, in the history of vehicle sales, or at least modern history of vehicle sales in the U.S. and this country, uh, to a little bit less of an extent, the Ford F-150 reigns supreme. Introduced in 1948, stats suggest it has been the best-selling pickup in North America for decades. It's always one of the best-selling vehicles overall, uh, specifically in the U.S., but also in this country. So you can imagine the anticipation when Ford announced it was going to take the F-150 electric with something called the Lightning, appropriately enough, a move that would test the fast-growing EV market in so many ways. Um, it is perhaps one of the most important electric vehicles to ever hit the market, perhaps one of the most important vehicles in some ways with so much uh, pressure, so much emphasis from policymakers to switch to electric. Uh, this may really be the litmus test, whether whether people, whether there's an electric vehicle that people really want. Here's some of the hype from Ford. It's got a targeted 775 pound feet of torque. It's targeted to go from zero to 60 in the mid four second range. It's a driving experience that's pure, unfiltered exhilaration from the moment you hit the accelerator. Oh, and it's an F-150. Introducing the all-electric F-150 Lightning, the smartest, most innovative F-150 we've ever built. Iconic F-150 capability meets advanced technology, meets electrification for an experience that's more connected, more dynamic, and more unexpected than ever before. Well, you can expect the commercial to sing the praises of the vehicle, but of course, it's a tall order to recreate something as iconic as the F-150 and transform it into an electric vehicle. Automotive journalists got a first look and feel of the Ford F-150 Lightning in Texas recently. So does it live up to expectations and what could that mean for the future of EVs in North America? Joining me is Scott Evans. He's the features editor for Motor Trend Magazine and one of those who took the Lightning for a spin. Scott, thanks so much for your time tonight. Thanks for having me. You referred to this as one of the most important vehicles uh, made. How so? How important and how much of antici- how much anticipation has there been uh, for this one? Well, you got right to it uh, already. These are the best-selling vehicles in North America. They are have been for decades. They continue to, to gain in popularity. So, whether you're looking to transition your fleet to to electric power for any reason, whether you're just trying to sell the most vehicles possible, like this is the most important segment to have a good vehicle in because trucks have large profit margins. They are extremely popular. You want to, you know, get it right here because the, the potential for, you know, future sales is, is enormous. So lots of anticipation, obviously, that... that uh, um... <laughs> What was it like then? I mean, how did this all come together that that you the people were given a chance to uh, to test it out? This is pretty standard uh, the way uh, this industry usually goes. The automakers know that um, they want to get the the vehicles in the hands of as many journalists as possible, so that you get a lot of diverse 
reviews of it. They reach as many as many readers, as many potential customers as possible. So they organize these events, um, usually right before the vehicle goes on sale, to to get the press uh, behind the wheel and uh, get uh, reviews out. And they cross their fingers and hope that we like it. And indeed, I read your review and... Um... I mean, it wasn't that you were pleasantly surprised, but you were you were enthusiastic. You thought this was that Ford had really um, done what they said they were going to do here. Yeah, I mean, there was there's a lot of ways to to get this wrong. I mean, trucks are are somewhat difficult vehicles in and of themselves because you know when you buy a sedan, you expect it to drive pretty much only on paved roads and go from from A to B and really all it has to do is get you places and, and not use too much fuel. But a truck these days, we want it to go off-road and we want it to go on our commute and we want it to go to the hardware store and ranching and hunting and camping and, and, and. So it has to do so many different tasks that all require a different skill set. So getting them all to do that is, is difficult enough. And then on top of that, this truck also has to be a good electric vehicle that you know drives well and has a good range and charges you know reasonably quickly and does all the things that an EV does well. So now you've taken you know an extra set of parameters that it also has to do, and Ford's done it. Yeah, tell me about that. What was it like? I really do think uh, it is the best riding and handling F one fifty that you can buy right now, and. And that's not always the most important thing to to people who buy trucks because trucks are, are, are rugged, but um, it's not a bad thing either because of the new chassis to carry those batteries and motors and things. It necessarily needs to have a fully independent suspension, which no F one fifty has ever had before. And when you get that, it tends to get you a better ride quality. And the battery being underneath the truck moves the uh, the vehicle center of gravity really, really low. And that helps vehicles handle better and feel more planted on the road. So it sort of is inherently just a more pleasant, nicer truck to drive that also tows 10,000 pounds and can carry 2,200 pounds of payload and, and all these other things that a truck has to do. I'm speaking with Scott Evans, the features editor for Motor Trend Magazine. We're talking about uh, him testing out the new Ford F-150 Lightning, its electric vehicle, the electric version of uh, the most popular uh, pickup truck in Canada, for sure. One of the most popular vehicles in North America for decades now. Um, what, what did you do when you, when, what, what did you want to find out about it when you took it out for a drive? And, and what did you find? You mentioned just, you mentioned quite a few things uh, just now, but was there anything else you were looking for to see whether the electric version would be different? Well, you always have some some sort of expectations based on you know reviewing the materials you know before you before you go, but the way it feels really you can't get from just looking at a, a chart of, of numbers, and so I, I wanted to know yeah, how it rides and drives, and, and we've we talked about that, but also you know Ford was was wise to provide trucks with a you know. 1,500 pounds of, of payload in the back and other trucks with trailers uh, all the way up to 9,500 pounds of trailer um, hitched to them so that you can really get a sense of how does the truck perform when it's doing truck things. And the answer to that is also really well, which you, we kind of have come to expect because we know electric motors have instantaneous torque and then nearly all of it at any at any time. So you knew it was going to get up and go, but how is it going to handle the weight? How is it going to turn? How is it going to stop? And 
I'm happy to say that it does all those things just as well as any gas-powered F-150 I've driven, and it's a bit smoother and quicker to drive um, thanks to those electric motors. How is the charging? Because that's always the question that comes up from people who are skeptical about electric vehicles is, is just the charging aspect of it. I would call it good, not great. The state of the art these days is over 200 kilowatts uh, on, a, on a public fast charger. And uh, this truck is uh, currently capped at 150 kilowatts. So it's going to charge quickly, but you know, direct competitors like, or at least the closest ones we have at the moment, like the GMC Hummer truck, the Rivian R1T, uh, both charge significantly more quickly. But it is quick enough that, you know, it's not a problem. It's just not uh, not as good as the, the competition. Um, why would that be? Why would, why would they go? For, I mean, I, I imagine it's something that would be not criticized, but is there a reason for, for Ford making that decision? It always comes down to protecting the life of the battery. Um, the faster you charge, the more heat it generates, and the more potential there is to damage the cells inside the battery. And by damage, I don't mean dangerously, but simply to wear them out more quickly. So a lot of automakers um, you know, are, are looking at warranty costs and, and how long they you know, are going to guarantee uh, you know, the life of the battery. And especially right now with the, you know, earliest vehicles they're putting out, they're taking a, a more cautious approach. And this truck, like many other new cars today, has the ability to accept over-the-air software updates. So it's possible, though Ford won't confirm it, that that they could release a, a software update that would increase the charging speed in the future. Other companies have already done things like that in the past. I'm speaking with Scott Evans, Features Editor for Motor Trend Magazine and one of the journalists who was in Texas recently to test out the new Ford F-150 Lightning, the electric version of the very popular Ford F-150. And it has gotten pretty much across the board good reviews. Scott's review of it was also very good. Uh, after this, I mean, there's been so much anticipation about what impact uh, this vehicle could have on the market, specifically the perception, perhaps, of electric vehicles. Uh, and we'll talk about that after this. We've been speaking about the F-150 Lightning, Ford's electric F-150 with Scott Evans, Features Editor for Motor Trend Magazine, one of the journalists who was in Texas recently to uh, test drive Ford's new vehicle. So after all the expectations, what kind of impact do you think this will make when it, uh, I mean, I gather it's already something you can order, uh, but what kind of impact do you think it'll make when it starts to hit the road, Scott? Yeah, you've been able to order it for uh, for some months now. Uh, they've actually closed off orders for, for this model year because they got too many. But it, they just started delivering the first ones uh, just a few weeks ago. And uh, I really think that this truck will, will make a, a big impact on people who were skeptical of, of EVs and who, who might still be at this point. There's a lot of people that, you know, don't know that they're that that vehicle is going to fit their, their lifestyle and especially for, for truck owners, right? Anyone who's bought a truck because they use it for their business or for their, you know, uh, holiday activities, they might need towing capacity. They might need hauling capacity, all these things. And there wasn't a vehicle that could do that for them and especially not also go, you know, two to 300 miles, you know, between charges. So this truck has a, a huge amount of potential to really, change perceptions for for a lot of uh, 
like we said, a, a huge number of customers who own trucks and, and never would have considered an electric uh, vehicle until now. Because there's certainly been that perception, at least uh, within Canada, I'm assuming it's the same in the States, that's really kind of like an urban Tony uh, kind of, like EVs are sort of that kind of inner city elite vehicle to some extent. I know it's this is a complete uh, stereotype, uh, but that's sort of the perception of them, the Tesla driver, for instance, you know, um, this could, this could change that, it, it seems. It absolutely could, um, because it can do pretty much any job you ask of it. I mean, they, I, you know, I kind of went over the list in my head, and mm-hmm. the only job that I can think of that it, that it's not quite ready for yet is if you have some kind of a business or perhaps you're retired and you own a very large trailer and you, you like to travel you know, multiple hundreds of miles per day with a you know a large trailer in tow because as we know with with gasoline powered and diesel powered vehicles towing severely cuts your efficiency down and and your fuel mileage and it's the same with electric and right now the you know we're still building in in both canada the united states and elsewhere the charging infrastructure and and really the charging infrastructure is not ready for vehicles that tow yet um so but that's more of a an infrastructure problem than it is really a Ford F-150 lightning problem or, or an EV problem. The, the batteries have gotten big enough, the range has gotten long enough, the charging times have gotten short enough that this truck can really do just about anything else you could ask of it. Yeah, I mean, the inf- must be the same issue in the U.S. as it is here in Canada. The infrastructure just isn't quite there yet. So in some senses, you can't even really put yourselves in a situation where you have hundreds of thousands of people buying EVs. Or, uh, But you would expect that if there's a huge surge in the number of people wanting to buy EVs, something like the F-150 Lightning, they buy it. Uh, there's going to be a demand for that infrastructure too. And you, you would think that would speed up uh, the building of it as well. Absolutely. And, and here in the U.S., there's been a, a push by the, the Biden administration to severely ramp up our construction of public charging stations, of, of fast, powerful charging stations to support this. But, you know, they take... Uh, it takes a little while to, to, to permit them and to build them and to, to get them online and run the power. You need an enormous amount of power to, to run them. So it's one of those things that um, they're selling the cars faster than they can, than they can build the stations. But um, there is the political will, um, at least in this country. Uh, I don't know the, uh, the politics as well in Canada, but um, to get these stations built. And there's going to be some growing pains right now until we, until they catch up. But there is an effort to catch up. In terms of just building these uh, these F-150 Lightnings, we know all about the supply chain issues. It seems the demand in Canada, at least, for EVs far out, uh, outpaces the supply of them right now because of some of these supply chain issues. Is that going to be a problem at all? Is availability going to be a problem for this vehicle in the, in the short term? At the moment, Ford is saying that it will not, that they have, they've taken over 200,000 reservations. They have, uh, you know, the the supply chain in place to, to fulfill those reservations and to start taking more reservations in their future. But, um, you know, it's, it's very difficult to predict. I mean, companies have spent, you know, two years trying to strengthen their supply chains and so that they're better prepared for, for stoppages and for, you know, parts that can't be found. But, it doesn't take much as we found to disrupt the supply chain. And if something, you know, major happens at a Ford supplier, 
uh, in you know this country or another, it could potentially cause a problem, and we just can't predict that for sure. But they they seem confident that they can weather it. There's a lot of rebates here still um, if you buy an electric vehicle. I imagine that makes these relatively affordable as well. Well, that's one of the, the strongest attributes of this truck is that the the starting trim, the, the work truck, is a very good and, and pretty well equipped. And in the United States, it starts at uh, just under $42,000. And the nearest other electric truck you can buy is the Rivian that starts tens of thousands of dollars more than that. So it's it's already a, a much better starting price than any other electric pickup you can buy. And yeah, when you put uh, you know various government incentives on top of that, it starts to look really good. In fact, it's actually a lot more affordable than a lot of gasoline and diesel powered uh, alternatives. And I imagine with the price of gas, it's been at record highs here. I know it's at record highs in California. Uh, that'll certainly be an incentive as well. I mean, it feels like this this vehicle is hitting the market at just about the perfect time with some very good reviews. So a good week for Ford, one would think. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they've, they've had some rough uh, vehicle debuts lately. There was a, the widely publicized uh, issues getting the, the Ford Bronco on the road uh, and into customers' hands. Um, they under-anticipated the demand for the Ford Maverick uh, pickup truck and have been have been running to, to catch up with that. So to have this one go off very well is, a, is just about everything they could have hoped for. Scott Evans, thanks so much for sharing uh, your experience with this uh, new vehicle. I imagine we'll be seeing them on the streets before too, too long. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me. I'm a big fan of trains. My grandfather worked for CPR. I've always liked trains. So I was paying attention when this war began to the use of trains in Ukraine. And it's hard to overstate just how important the rail system and those who keep the trains running has been to the war effort, a national lifeline. The railroad has become a symbol of resistance. It brings weapons, aid, and supplies to the east of the country. It's evacuated millions of people fleeing the violence. It's also now transporting families back to areas that were previously occupied by Russian troops. It's brought foreign leaders to Kyiv, including the Canadian delegation that visited the capital on the weekend. Prime Minister Trudeau even posted a video thanking the rail service. And I really want to take a moment to say thank you to all the railway workers of Ukraine. Uh, it has been an extremely difficult time, but you're there to help people get out, to bring necessary goods and supplies in, and you're stepping up uh, to continue to keep Ukraine free and strong. Thank you for everything you're doing. Since Russia began its blockade of the Black Sea coast, Ukraine has also been using rail to try to export goods like wheat, coal, steel, and chemical products uh, through the West. So how have they done it? How have they kept the trains running through an invasion? Well, joining me now to talk about that and much more is Alexander Commission. He's the CEO of Ukrainian Railways. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Nice to hear you, Ben. I'm trying to imagine what it must have been like in the very early days of the Russian invasion, just how quickly you had to change so many things and how you managed to adapt so quickly. But I don't remember that already because the whole life passed for the last uh, two and a half months, indeed. And uh, first days were like half life itself, you know. But finally, uh, we done what we had to do with evacuation program, with humanitarian aid program, and now we're doing more and more on the cargo side. I mean, the, the train system has really become the lifeline 
for Ukraine. Uh, just how important has it become for the country uh, in this war effort? Well, the key word in this world, bigger word, is the life. So finally, we secure the life for people. We evacuate people. We bring food, medicals, and all the rest back to East. And uh, that's uh, securing life. You know, we say that in the peaceful time, we've been the backbone of economy. In the wartime, we began, became the backbone of security. So finally, I believe it's important. The sheer number of people that you've moved from the East uh, towards safety is remarkable. I think it's something like three and a half million, maybe more now. It's four million from East uh, Center and South of Ukraine to West, and, and it's half million from West to neighbor countries. How have you managed to keep the trains running in the middle of a war? You know, from one side, uh, from one hand, that's uh, almost impossible to run uh, the railways under shelling. From another side, it's quite easy. I've got 231,000 well-disciplined, determined uh, railway men, and all of them, all of us, do our job daily, and uh, we just keep running. We just keep moving on, you know. How have you managed to, with, with Russia targeting infrastructure now, targeting the rails, how have you managed to try and make sure that those repairs are done? Ben, actually, they're not that good in targeting. You know, they constantly uh, improve that, but they're not that good. Uh, I would say that Russian army was overestimated. Second point, we keep repairing, and we are better and better in that. So once they shell us, we take a break until the shelling ends. Then people run out, fix everything, and uh, get back. And finally, we learned how to repair fast and how to keep running. You know, it never takes us more than two hours. Uh, being being uh, not operating the railroads, like we constantly find a way how to keep running. I understand that you've imposed sort of a, a different kind of management style for this. That you allow people on the ground to make decisions that would have taken longer in the past. Indeed, before the war, uh, me and my team, we were a kind of uh, construction team, development team, uh, like CapEx program team, but now we had to become the wartime team. And finally, we rely much on people on the ground, as you say, and we travel much across the whole country to meet those people on the ground and to walk on the ground together with them. And uh, finally, it works. What do you, I mean, you've been across the country during this war. You've met, and it is the largest employer in the country, as you mentioned, some 230,000 yes, employees. Yeah, it's, it's massive. You've, what, what do you hear from all your staff out there about the work they're doing? You know, Ben, never in my life I told more times, thank you for what you do. Uh, and never in my life I heard more times, well, we are just doing our job. And it's not just words. You know, all these people, as well as me, as well as the whole team, are just doing our jobs. We don't have any other option but to keep running, keep doing our job. And that's what the whole world understood. We will not step down. There is no way for us to step down. We only can win this war. It's only about how soon it will happen and how many lives we can save together with the Western world. Because you've lost lives too, Alexander. Your, your, your employees have, have sacrificed as well. You know, that's the highest uh, price we pay in this war, indeed. 
and uh, actually that makes the highest pain to myself. We already lost 130 as killed and 162 as injured, and three people remain hostages. And that's the highest price, actually. That's something which we can't uh, reconstruct, can't restore. And all the rest, the damage infrastructure, we'll rebuild it. It's, it's fine. What do you say to, to, to your staff when you or what do they say to you when, when you when you talk about the risks that are involved in doing this work now? Ben, actually, no one is talking about the risk. You know, like uh, people run the company, and if they meet me in deep east, where it's really dangerous, like we do not talk about the risks. We talk about uh, food, water, and reconstruction of bridges and reconstruction of tracks and all the rest. You know. Uh, it would be not smart to talk about risks being in Kharkiv or in Kramatorsk. What have been the biggest challenges uh, from your point of view in trying to keep everything going day after day? You know, they start shelling more and more precisely. They start shelling more and more targeting infrastructure, railway infrastructure. But finally, again, uh, I believe that the light will beat the darkness and finally will fight them out from our country. You're new to this. This is not something you've been doing for a very long time. You're 37, I believe, which is um, how much of a challenge has it been for you personally and and for your family too, uh, for you to take on, to have this role at such a crucial time for the country? The highest challenge for me is not seeing my kids for already uh, 2.5 months and that's the highest cost for me and the highest challenge. And uh, all the rest is doable. All the rest is fine. They must be proud of you? I'm not asking them about that. I'm asking them to do more for our country. My kids are making uh, a bracelets, something you can put on your hand uh, with Ukrainian flags. And they are selling that uh, in Europe. And, uh, and they are buying... Um, tools for kids uh, and send it to uh, Ukraine. So it's only about discussing with them how much they've done uh, for their native country today and what they sent and what's what their impact, you know. I'm speaking with Alexander Commission. He's the CEO of Ukrainian Railways. We're talking about how the rail system has managed to continue to operate, has become not only a symbol of resistance to Russia, but also the lifeline for the country. Uh, when we come back, a bit more about just how vital it's become now, not only for moving people around Ukraine, but also for Ukraine's exports with shipping routes cut off. That's next. I'm speaking with Alexander Kemishin. He's the CEO of Ukrainian Railways. We've been talking about just how vital the rail system has been to the war effort uh, in Ukraine, how important it's been to saving lives to getting supplies to the front lines and to bringing people out, and also the sacrifices that Ukrainian rail workers have made. More than 100 have been killed. More than that have been injured. Alexander, I understand, too, that the rail network has now taken on a very significant role when it comes to moving exports out of the country with so much trouble now trying to get exports out the, the normal way through the sea, through ports. Uh, indeed, Ben. And uh, on the 20th day of the war, we started thinking about how we can uh, change the direction of exports, grain and iron ore and metals and all the rest. And uh, finally, we understood that we have to run west. We have to go west. 
and uh, that's what we are developing for the last two months and that's where we pay attention that's where we try to find new way how we can bring more cargo to the world again ukraine was exporting 50 million tons of greens worldwide and that's something the world needs and that's something we have if you heard uh, the president biden Uh, told today that he knows that we've got some 20 million tons of uh, grain inside the country and he is also finding a way how we can bring that out and uh, that's important for the whole world it is i mean we know we've been talking about food shortages as well and just how much ukraine's the cutoff of ukraine's uh exports has been difficult for countries that rely on them Uh, how difficult has it been to try to 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 sort of reposition to, to try to get those exports out of the country you know, all of our neighbors, especially Poland, Romania, uh, Hungary, uh, Slovakia, and uh, Moldova, are really, really cooperative. They are really doing much for us. Meanwhile, we can export 10 times more than we are doing now. And uh, that's the philosophy we try to show to European countries, that we are not just the country which is uh, being attacked by Russians, and we ask for assistance with beating them out where the country which has some uh, 100 million tons of cargo, which can go new direction, and that's the new business we're bringing to European countries. Each ton of cargo could bring as much as $50 per ton of logistical costs, which will stay in European countries. That's something new for European countries. And obviously very important for Ukraine's economy too, with, with the damage that, that the invasion has done, is, is keeping people working, keeping those exports getting out. Indeed, you're right. Uh, and, you know, we, are, we were quite well structured and quite well uh, organized in the worldwide economy, in the global economy. And, you know, this uh, means that uh, when we find this way out, all countries will win. What's it been like? We know that you had a thank you from Canada's Prime Minister because you have been, and we, I, know, I know there's probably some operation security involved here, so we don't have to get into details, but you have been bringing foreign dignitaries in from Poland to Kiev uh, because, of course, there are no flights in, in and out of the country right now. What's that been like, and what's it like to get the, the acknowledgement from foreign leaders about the hard work that you're doing? I tell you the only thing. You've got great Prime Minister. You, you're a really lucky country. That's great. You took this job on, not knowing what would come next. What about for you? Do you ever have any, do you ever sit back and think what life might be like if you hadn't taken on this position? You're still 37. You're obviously still learning on the job too. We all are when we start new work. Uh, How has it been for you personally? I mean, you talked about your family, but just in terms of the decisions you have to make, the pressure that's on you, uh, how has that been for you? Ben, you know, if I would have some time i would sit and uh, sit back and and think about that but uh, russians don't let me uh, have that time second point uh, we never asked uh, we never planned we never wanted to be in the war russians didn't ask us they just came and started killing us so we have to stand up and fight and third point you know during the war time you learn faster really faster what do you, when you look to the future, the near future, what are your hopes and what are your concerns when you, when you look at, at the months ahead uh, as this fight continues? Ben, I know, you know, I told you that uh, my team was the construction team, the building team, the new projects team. And finally, that's what we brought to the company one, uh, nine months ago. And uh, once we fight Russians out, I'm sure that we'll have the great 
reconstruction. And I'm sure that uh, it will be even more important, those skills which I was bringing in the company, to reconstruct the infrastructure to build the new railway. You've had some help. I mean, one of the things I found interesting about this is that rail workers in Belarus, for instance, have been involved in some, some, you spoke about this a bit. There seems to be a bit of solidarity amongst rail workers here. Are you seeing that? Indeed, uh, there are honest and uh, smart people uh, in Belarus as well, and they do what they have to do. They also do their job, not letting Belarusian and Russian uh, army trains, military trains, uh, step in Ukraine uh, by the rail, by the track. And, uh, you know, uh, like I also feel support from Canada, and uh, what your country is doing for Ukraine is also very, very important for us. I would like to thank you, to thank all people of Canada. And that's really important for us. That's something we will remind. Um, you've managed to keep the rail system as also a sense of security, I think, for the people of Ukraine. The idea that the trains are still running provides confidence, I think, to people that they can move, that they can find safety or at least get supplies. How important has that aspect been for you to try to provide that security, uh, that sense of normalcy, say, to the people of Ukraine during this very abnormal time? You know, Ben, under constant challenge, uh, if a person knows that the only thing he should do is to get to the station, and that's where he will get uh, hot tea, hot meal, uh, first aid, psychological uh, assistance, and uh, medicals, and uh, within one day, uh, he will for sure depart to West. I believe that's something really important in this shaky world. And uh, that's what we've done with 4 million people. And uh, now the main challenge for us to bring those people back once it's safe in their towns. So finally, we are moving people out and then we hope to move them in i guess that will be the victory the day that people that you start moving millions back to the areas that you've moved them out of i am really 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 expecting that day alexander chemishin thank you so much for your time tonight i appreciate it ben it was a pleasure I don't know if you managed to watch the conservative leadership debate in Edmonton this evening. The first official one last week's that dust up in Ottawa was in fact an unofficial one. Patrick Brown wasn't there, of course, one of the six candidates and one of the ones sort of considered to be perhaps one of those who could make a bit of a run here. Uh, last week's was much maligned. Uh, it was very fun to watch, uh, but maligned for being quite personal. Lots of attacks between Jean Charest and Pierre Polyev, the front runners, uh, Polyev particularly. Uh, but it got pretty personal there uh, last week. So what what to expect tonight? Well, it was a very different scene in Edmonton. Uh, you know, there's Edmonton's known for its for its hockey and its footballs. It's a contact sport kind of place. Not tonight, not on that stage. Uh, Patrick Brown, though, the Brampton mayor, was there. They began with this question. Each was asked to finish this sentence. My vision for Canada is blank. Here's Pierre Poliev and Patrick Brown. It is one where people have the freedom to take back control of their lives. That means freedom from inflation so that hardworking single mothers can afford nutritious food for their kids. <clears throat> freedom from inflation so that 32-year-olds don't have to live in their parents' basements, that they can actually afford their own homes. 
The choice before the party is clear. Do we want an unelectable party leader who drives voters away, walks straight into liberal traps, giving unclear answers on divisive issues like abortion, and wedges conservatives against each other? Are we ready to win? I'm Mayor Patrick Brown, and I'm ready to win, and we need your help. Uh, if you mentioned another candidate by name, you got the sad trombone tonight. Uh, Patrick Brown came very close there, but didn't. Uh, Leslin Lewis, of course, Scott Aitchison, Roman Barber, and Jean Charest were all on that stage as well. Again, the format very different. Uh, they weren't allowed to mention other party leaders' names either. So no Justin Trudeau uh, mentioned today, at least not much. Well, joining me now from Edmonton with more is Dave Breckenridge, managing editor of the Edmonton Journal and Edmonton Sun and host of the 10-3 podcast. Dave, welcome to the show. That was a curious debate. Yeah, it was. It was a very curious debate. I, I, we can talk about uh, some of the, the in, idiosyncrasies of it uh, as we go, but I, I really found the format almost refreshing and i may be one of the few yeah. to say that because i'm used to these ridiculous federal leader debates where the candidates yell and talk over each other and these weird like three-person standoff uh, arguments that we seem to think is a good thing in canada and i really actually liked some of the format of the debate now in, in some cases it didn't necessarily lead to much debate back and forth it was more candidates giving statements one after another on a specific issue. Um, but I, I kind of liked, they had a, they had a segment, uh, we can get into it in a bit, but it, it involved like auction paddles where candidates yeah. had to put up their, their paddle to say, I want to talk on this issue. And they had five, five attempts to, to get in on the mix, but there were six topics. And so if you used up all your paddles too early, you were out and Pierre Poiliev was the, was the first one to use up all his paddles. And so his opponents got to take free shots at him through the end of that segment. So I, I thought seven, it was yeah. an interesting way to approach a leader's debate. Uh, Tom Clark, formerly of Global News, of course, uh, was the moderator. It very much felt like a, like a sit-down, one-on-one interview with all six candidates at times, all getting asked the same questions. But, you know, it started off with some more standard questions about policy issues, uh, specifically some hot-button issues like like abortion. Um, and then it went off into sort of strange, as, not strange, it was actually quite interesting about, you know, what kind of music do you listen to? What have you read recently? What have you binge watched? And it was quite revealing. Uh, did you enjoy that part of it? I, I learned things I didn't know about each of them. Well, I, I did in part because we're looking at candidates whom the Canadian public don't know a lot about. You know, people, they know of Pierre Poiliev, what they see on TV in Parliament, yelling at the Prime Minister or, or you know, during the, the convoy in Ottawa, he was outside talking about these people, standing up for these people's freedoms, but they don't really know a lot about him. And obviously, when you talk about these kind of answers and politicians, they're obviously staged to a certain degree, right? There, there's, there's never any necessarily um, random answers. But, I, you know, the, I found it interesting, the fact that, that Roman Baber was talking about you know, he, he recently binge-watched Married with Children, and it was the show that when his family came to Canada, that's what he watched to learn how to speak English. I found that interesting. I found the fact that Colin Aitchison is, is a big Brooklyn Nine-Nine fan, and, and it just yeah. kind of gives me a little glimpse into who they are as people. Um, I, it, the music question was another one that I always, I always find interesting personally. 
Um, I love that question. So again, Roman Baber, big Amy Winehouse fan. But then you get to, you know, there's standard politician answers. Patrick Brown wants to to play up Alessia Cara because she's from Brampton. Or Pierre Poiliev playing up Paul Brandt because... He's an Alberta boy and, and stuff yeah. like that. I, you know, I always kind of shake my head at, at some of the rehearsed political answers. But in some cases, I, I think it kind of plays into surrounding these people out as people for the Canadian public. Because right now, we don't know a ton about at least two-thirds of them. You're right. I mean, it, we, we want to get to know who the leader is, right? It's not just about policy, it's about personality. And I think within those questions, uh, there was quite a bit about just sort of, and they were spontaneous. People had to think of things on their feet that they probably hadn't prepped for. And I don't think anyone yeah. prepped for what it, what did you binge watch? It was interesting <laughs> that Pelly had binge watched a docuseries on, on Trotsky and seemed really angry about it. Um, you know, it was, uh, it was, there were some interesting answers in there. What did you, there were, there was a, quite a bit of substance in there as well. One of the interesting, uh, exchanges i thought at one point was a that that pierre polyev does as, as again or twice in this debate talked about firing the bank of canada governor uh tiff macklem which uh which i don't think we i mean he still has seven years so uh, or not seven years but he has seven years it was a strange approach and then he got nailed on bitcoin which was also quite interesting it's strange that with affordability clearly where he's connecting with people that he would continue to talk about the bank of canada and you know digital currencies I mean, in his mind, and there may be some truth to it, that, that monetary policy is is directly affecting the affordability of, of people's day-to-day lives. I just find it strange. I remember when there was, a, there was talk about former Bank of Canada Governor Mark Carney coming back and running for the Liberals. There was a segment of conservatism in Canada that lost its mind, that said, oh my gosh, we can't have this. We, we can't have a politicized... Uh, former Bank of Canada governor, this just kind of flies in the face of what the Bank of Canada is supposed to represent. It's supposed to be apolitical. And now you have a conservative politician who's saying outright, well, I'm going to get rid of the head of the Bank of Canada now for uh, running up inflation in this country. I, you know, it's it makes for a, an easy target for him as he's portrayed himself as a, as a populist candidate to say, I'm going to do away with the gatekeepers in this country and make life more affordable for you so you can get out of your mother's basement so you don't have to make the choice between heating or eating. And he was using those talking points again. And that was the one thing about his performance tonight I found kind of not tiresome, but we've heard him say all that before. He didn't necessarily offer anything new on the debate stage tonight. And, and, but when it comes to the bank of Canada governor, it's, it's kind of red meat for, for this segment of conservative voters who, who may think that the gatekeepers are out to make my life really hard. It just seems like if you're trying to appeal to a broader audience, you got the sense of tonight's debate that it was almost built to try to be more appealing to a broader section of people. The first debate, the unofficial one uh, last week, was clearly for the base. It was clearly, you know, it was a conservative gathering and it was very much a lot of the talking points we've heard. Uh, this one felt like it was meant to be more revealing of who each candidate was to a broader audience. Uh, but it felt like what some of Pierre Polyev was, was, was tackling was very much the same thing. So you wonder about his his ability to expand his appeal or whether he's already figured out maybe he doesn't need it. He may not need it. I mean, the goal in this race is to sell as many memberships as you can to people who believe in what you're selling. And if he does a better job of that than Patrick Brown or Jean Charest or Scott Aitchison, then he can win this race. Um, I did find it interesting that 
you know, Patrick Brown, Angelon Charest, and, and Scott Aitchison were really trying to appeal to middle-of-the-road voters. They, I think they may have been hoping that, that uh, non-conservative members were watching out of genuine curiosity. Charest played up the notion that he wants to be a political home for the political homeless. Um, he, you know, we want to expand the, the conservative tent. We want to, we want to win voters elsewhere. Patrick Brown made a big show of that in a, in a lot of his talking points was around, I can win, I can beat Trudeau, I can win in the suburbs, I can win in places like the GTA, where my he, he didn't come right out and name Poiliev by, by name, but that was the message that we were getting, is, is Pierre Poiliev is divisive, he's not selling a message that's going to resonate with mainstream Canadians, whereas I can, I can win those voters. And so that's where really the kind of the split in this race is. And it, and it seemed to me tonight that it was basically... Poiliev on one side and Jean Charest and Patrick Brown on another. And then Scott Aitchison, I think, hoping to get his message out to more people that, that you know, maybe he's a better candidate than, than Brown or Charest, who do have their own baggage. Yeah. And then Roman Baber, of course, and Leslin Lewis uh, there as well. Mm-hmm. Did you think that Patrick, how did you think that Patrick Brown and, and, and Jean Charest did tonight? This was a big probably a big one for them. They're going to have to make an impact at some point. It feels like uh, Poiliev is, is, is in the lead and, and doesn't, do you think they've performed well enough to try and shift that tide at all? I, I mean, it's hard to say whether they'll have shifted the tide. I think the fact that it's a longer race might benefit them uh, to, to gain some momentum on Poiliev, who is, who is the obvious front runner. Um, he made a big splash when he announced and, as I said, like Patrick Brown, um, it was his first real showing for Canadian conservative voters um, who may not know his history in the Conservative Party of Canada, his uh, PC uh, of Ontario leadership, um, and being mayor of Brampton. Um, I felt that he seemed very relaxed on stage. He had a lot of good answers to to the questions that were posed to him by by Tom Clark. Um, I felt that his messaging directed in a lot of a lot of cases at Poiliev were designed to to show him as not a divisive candidate, as someone who can win with mainstream voters. And I think that in comparison, Jean Charest, you know, he just came off as as quite angry and fiery at times, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, but he didn't have that same kind of calm that that Patrick Brown did. Patrick Brown was, was very much kind of, he seemed very relaxed and comfortable on that stage. And I I think that was, um, I think key for him is a way to, to present himself as someone who can, who can take on someone like Pierre Poiliev, but not lose his cool, not let anything get under his skin. Um, and he can, he can handle the fight with, without, you know, without losing message. I'm speaking with Dave Breckenridge, Managing Editor of the Edmonton Journal and Edmonton Sun, host of the 10 Free Podcast. We've been talking about tonight's uh, conservative leadership debate, the first official one. Last week's was a non-official one. Patrick Brown, as we were just talking about, he was there this week. He wasn't there last week. Um, when we come back, we'll uh, talk a bit more about the debate. Also talk a bit more about a big court win for um, Alberta yesterday, and uh, the Premier seems mighty happy about it. That's next. I'm speaking with Dave Breckenridge, Managing Editor of the Edmonton Journal and the Edmonton Sun, host of the 10-3 podcast. We're talking about the conservative leadership debate in Edmonton uh, tonight. Uh, Dave, I was surprised at how many things, when they were sort of given this yes-no question about no-fly zone over Ukraine, supply management, 2% of defense, 2% of GDP on defense spending, 
there was a lot of agreement on that stage uh, overall. There are a few areas where they don't agree, but they seem to agree on a fair amount of things. Yeah, and I I think that's one way that that this debate. I mean, it's it's nice to see them stating their position on on issues that conservative voters may be interested in uh, without yelling at each other about being corrupt or can't not having credibility or I can't believe anything that you say or, you know, you raise taxes, blah, blah, blah. Um, yeah, there was a lot of agreement. I was surprised to see someone come out. Uh, Patrick Brown, I believe it was, kind of came out and, and said basically, oh, yeah, no, let's have a no-fly zone over Ukraine. I mean, he yeah. he. He qualified that by saying, you know, we would have to push the international community. We can't do it on our own. It would have to fall under NATO. But like, even even Pierre Poiliev, who, who some people may have assumed would be quite hawkish on defense, turned around and said, well, I'm not out here to, to declare war on this stage tonight. Um, I, I did find that that segment interesting. Um, I mean, just in general, that because some of these issues are, are quite nuanced and, and maybe the general public doesn't need to know about the long and the short of supply management, they have a general idea of what supply management is and whether it's good or bad. And so just to have the candidates answer in a lightning round style, actually, I think might work for a lot of voters. The idea that do you support supply management? Yes, no, yes, no, yes, no, yes, no. Because at the end of the day, the bulk of the the voting group, either in this leadership race or in the public as a whole, isn't going to spend much more time thinking about that other than do they support it? Yes or no. And, and, and so it does, the, it does work record, in a lot too, of ways, right? and it helps the debate move along quickly um, without getting too bogged down in, in um, minutiae, I guess. Uh, quick, quick question before I jump to the, to the next subject. We actually I didn't leave much time for it. But, so did you think there was a winner tonight? Was there anyone who, who or, or at least someone who didn't lose tonight? Um, I, I think, like, if you were looking at people who didn't lose, like, Scott Aitchison didn't lose because... It, he stood out and, and he, he made a, a genuine, passionate pitch for s- civility within the party and, and him being the candidate to bring everybody together. Sheree and, and Brown needed to have a strong performance here because I think that for a large segment of the country, they're either unknown or, or forgotten um, and needed to remind people of who they are. Um, I, I think in terms of, you know, maybe who didn't have the best performances of the night just because they're I don't think they're seen as front-runner candidates, and, and if they needed to get themselves out there a little more, I, I don't think Roman Baber and Leslin Lewis did themselves any favors tonight. Leslin Lewis looked kind of shaky on some of the, the free-for-all questions, um, and, and Baber just seemed to have kind of one, one-note argument, like uh, freedom and no lockdowns and, and low taxes, and that was kind of it for him. Yeah, it was interesting that way. Yeah, I agree. I, I didn't think there was there was any standout. I thought uh, uh, Polivier essentially stood his ground, and uh, and Sheree should worry about Patrick Brown. I think I, I feel like Patrick Brown uh, might be taking up some of that space. And who's the electable other? Who's the other candidate mm-hmm. in this race? Will be interesting to see. Uh, a big speaking of victories, and I will have about three minutes left, so I apologize. But uh, Jason Kenny was in a good mood yesterday, uh, pumped. He said, without irony, about that court decision. Um, what do you make of that? What's been, what's been the mood there? Do they think this will be different from the uh, from the uh, carbon tax Supreme Court decision? Is there an idea that this actually might go Alberta's way? Well, I, re- I remember that there was a lot of confidence in Alberta when when the Alberta Court of Appeal said that the the carbon tax was unconstitutional and infringed on provincial jurisdiction, and so going into the Supreme Court. There was a lot of confidence in Alberta, and then, as we all know, that the Supreme Court said, "No, no, the, the federal government is fine to do that." I think there's a maybe this because it's 
you know, the federal government can levy taxes, whereas this potentially potentially does infringe on provincial jurisdiction when it comes to approving energy projects, right? Yeah. That the idea that, um, or managing resources, because I know there's federal oversight on, on energy projects, that, you know, we may have a better case before the Supreme Court, but at the end of the day, it's really hard to say, because I know as the Supreme Court on the carbon tax file said, well, the federal government does have jurisdiction here and they can do that. So maybe the, the carbon tax case could be seen as, as uh, a preview of what's to come. But I, I think for people out West who don't want the Fed sticking their nose in areas of provincial jurisdiction, it was a good day. You know, the, this was a Bill C-69, which the Alberta Court of Appeal ruled on, was a bill that was opposed by both the United Conservative Party and the New Democrats here. They didn't want the federal government sticking their nose in on this. So I, I think for Jason Kenney, it is a good day, and it's he, he needs victories like that right now. And it will be interesting to see. I mean, it's going to take several months before this is decided, no doubt, probably uh, not before the end of the year. But uh, in terms of the assessments, it's going to be interesting. I, I guess there's some debate now, and we only have about 30 seconds left, but some debate now over whether it was binding or not, this decision. I, I think the general consensus is it's not binding as of right now, that the law is still in place and the Supreme Court would be the decision on it. But I, I know that there were cabinet ministers in Alberta who were cheering the fact that the law was struck down today. And I guess we'll, we'll see how, how that goes for them over the next little while. But my, my read of some of the commentary on it is that, no, it's not binding right now. The Supreme Court has to weigh in. Dave Breckenridge, thank you so much for your time tonight. A fascinating debate. And I will, some of those questions I was pitching earlier about your favorite 80 song to describe your adolescence, we'll, uh, we'll talk about those next time. Awesome. Thanks, Ben.